May I ask everyone stand as, as I read Psalm 62. This is a Psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Amen. You may have a seat. Psalm 62 is a psalm of confidence. So let me ask you, are you a confident Christian? I'm not asking are you confident that you are a Christian, although that is an important question as well, but do you live your life as a confident Christian? You know, this psalm reminds me of a film-making strategy uh, that you sometimes see where the movie begins with the final scene. Have you seen a movie like this? There are some what people would call classic films. I'm not recommending these for the record, all right? Don't email me. Uh, but Pulp Fiction, um, Fight Club, there's some other movies that the, the first scene is a depiction of the final scene. And then after that, it cuts to the beginning. And the rest of the movie is the story of how things unfolded to get to that ending scene that you've already seen. Who's lost? All right? Um, likewise, Psalm 62, I think David starts with the ending. I shall not be greatly shaken. He kind of declares where he is at, and then he, he brings us through the journey to tell us how did he get there. But I think Psalm 62 starts with the ending. And I, I mean, I almost don't even have to spend this much time here to convince us that uh, there's a lot in this fallen world that can shake us, right? There is uh, a global pandemic and the constant reports of variants and what's next and what's coming, and I thought we were over this, and it's 18 months and counting, and I feel like we just can't get away from it, and that can, that can shake us in a lot of ways. There's the constant political infighting combined with the seemingly constant cultural upheaval where hatred is so palpable. 
right? Where, where all of a sudden, relating to the fact that uh, the, in the 19th century in this country and then went into a civil war, all of a sudden that doesn't feel as foreign as a concept maybe as it once did for us. Not to mention individual crisis that you might be facing, crisis of faith, crisis of love, crisis of relationships in your life where you feel shook. Like, like where, where the world just feels so overbearing and so overwhelming and God, if we're honest, seems small. So how can we not just talk about confidence, but walk in confidence? What does it look like? In Psalm 62, I want to make six observations of a confident Christian. I'm not going to say everything there is to say about confidence, but I want to stay rooted in Psalm 62. What does David tell us about being a confident believer? What's it look like? How can we get there? All right, so six observations. Number one, a confident Christian waits patiently on the Lord. That's how he begins this psalm. Remember, we're starting with the ending. Uh, If I can take this illustration a step further, think about a camera panning to King David's face. And when you look at his face, you can kind of just tell. It's a face of a man who's been through a lot. The face of a man who's seen some things. And yet it's the face of a man who, uh, despite everything being unsettled around him, is resolved. I will wait in silence on the Lord. Think about this with me, right? To wait in silence is a sign of strength while in a place of weakness. Can you think about that with me? To wait in silence is to show a sign of strength while in a place of weakness. Right? Because the very act of waiting, no matter what it is you're waiting for, small daily things, big life-shaping things, whatever you're waiting for, it's a sign to you that you're not in control, that I'm not in control. We all wait in traffic because you can't control all the cars moving to the side and getting to your destination any faster. You wait for test results to come back from your doctor because you can't control the outcome. You wait for a phone call from that job interview you took because you can't just give yourself the job, and so you are called to wait. David is waiting for the Lord to deliver him from his enemy because he realizes he cannot defeat his enemy on his own. Waiting is this inevitable aspect of life. But the way we respond to that waiting does depend on us. Most times you won't control what you wait for, but you do control how you're going to respond in the midst of waiting. A confident Christian is one who waits patiently on the Lord. Think in your mind of somebody that you would say, that's a confident person. Think of somebody you say, that person, is just, that person just shows confidence. What do we often think about when we call somebody confident? Don't we often think it's the person who has it all together? They are the most gifted. They are the one everybody else strives to be. When we think of confidence and confident people, we dwell on their strengths. But I think the truth is, I think what Psalm 62 and the rest of the Bible shows over and over again is that confidence 
is more clearly shown by how you see yourself and how you react when in a place of weakness. I think confidence most shows itself by how you see yourself and how you react to things around you when in a place of weakness. Again, waiting, such a reality woven into the fabric of our lives where we don't realize how much time we spend waiting. To be a pastor or a leader in the local church in many ways is defined by knowing what people in the congregation are waiting for. I can look around and I can see faces and I can say, I I know you have entrusted me with the thing that you're waiting for. So let me ask you, what are you waiting for? How are you doing in the midst of that waiting? Waiting happens because we cannot control everything, but waiting patiently is done by trusting in the one who does control all things. David shows us that being silent and waiting is at times the strongest thing you can do. It's why the Apostle Paul writes, after asking God to take away this proverbial thorn from his side, he said, I asked the Lord three times, and the Lord said, no. And how does Paul respond? He says, quote, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That when we boast in weakness, when we're honest about where we are weak, that is when the power of Christ rests on us, rests and is transferred through us. A confident Christian waits patiently on the Lord. I think that's the final scene of Psalm 62. And now he's going to bring us through. How did he get there? With number two, verses three and four, a confident Christian is beaten but never broken. A confident Christian is beaten but never broken. In verse three, David, interestingly enough, speaks directly to his enemy And he goes by asking, how long? Do you remember that from last week, our psalm of lament? He says, how long will you attack a man? By asking this, it indicates that it's already been long enough. You don't ask how long unless it's already been long enough. This is not a sudden trial he finds himself in. This is a long, drawn-out battle that David is in. And confidence is most worn down in us by attrition over a long period of time. A child whose parents are always telling them that they're not good enough messes with their confidence. A player whose coach cuts him down at every practice messes with his confidence. A spouse who can do nothing right, according to the other spouse, makes them unconfident. A worker whose boss is always critiquing and never affirming. It wears on confidence, and it especially happens over time. We find out why David is waiting, and it's because he is taking blow after blow after blow. He calls himself a leaning wall. Like, how many more blows can I take before this thing just tips over and it's gone? In this way, a confident Christian doesn't have his head in the clouds. He's got a realistic view of the world, of the real pain that it inflicts upon us. A confident Christian does not pretend everything's fine and that they're just untouchable. It's not uh, to quote the terrible book that's out there, Girl, Wash Your Face, and just put some makeup on and, and just 
conquer the world. This is on you. Don't let, it, don't let it get to you. This is the message that we receive, that you have to be untouchable if you're a Christian. And then David says an interesting line in verse 4. He talks about how the most dangerous times are the, are the people who pretend to bless you, but inwardly want to curse you. Say one thing to your face, turn around and say something else behind your back. You know, there's a book in the Old Testament, it's called Nehemiah. And it's the story of the Jewish people returning to their homeland from exile and reestablishing themselves in in the land. And this man, Nehemiah, took charge of rebuilding the city walls of the capital. And throughout the story, you see that the people in the surrounding region see what's happening. They see the Jewish people coming back and starting to rebuild the city, and they were determined to stop it. So they would send messengers to the wall to try and sweet-talk Nehemiah off the wall. Say, hey, we want to come meet with you. And they secretly had a plan that when he came off the wall, they would depose of him. Similar to the way Satan would tempt Jesus in the desert. Satan did not tempt Jesus with threats, but with deceptive words. With scripture even. Trying to get him off the proverbial wall. And Nehemiah sends word back to these messengers I'll always remember it. I want you to remember it. He says, quote, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. The enemy is trying to bring you down, trying to destroy you. Sometimes that will be through suffering. Many times it's through deceptive, sweet talk. But a confident Christian, when beaten, is never broken. Confident Christian says to the enemy, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Number three, a confident Christian preaches to themselves. This is the journey that David is bringing us upon when he goes through it. A confident Christian preaches to themselves. Verse five, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. This stanza and the verses after it are very similar to verses 1 and 2, but there's a seemingly small yet vital difference. In verse 1, David declared that his soul will wait in silence, but verse 5, notice, he is urging himself to wait in silence. He is commanding this. He's preaching this to himself. Verse 1, again, is where things ended, but verse 5 is spoken in the midst of the battle. When you're beaten down, In this way, verse 1 is where we hope to be, but verse 5 is where we often find ourselves, day in and day out. So a confident Christian learns the daily practice of preaching to self. It is the spiritual daily manna that is required for nourishment. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you remember in the book of Exodus, the people of God, after they escaped from Egypt with Moses, God literally fell them fed them with manna on the ground. They would wake up, there'd be manna on the ground for that day. Feed them for that day. And then it would be gone, and they'd have to wake up and hope that God would do it again. And you might be reading that and be like, God, why don't you just give them six months of manna? Some storage facilities, just in case. And yet, it was the daily reminder that all we have and all we need comes from the Lord. And it comes each and every day because we need it each and every day. 
For those of you who have been in a really hard trial in your life, maybe you're in a real hard trial right now, you know from experience. You can't just tell yourself something once and know that that trial is gone forever. When you're in a really difficult season of life, don't have to do that every single day. Do it again. Every day, the reason why the Lord's mercies are new every morning is because we need new mercy every morning. He alone my soul waits for. He alone is my rock. He alone is my foundation. You see that word on repeat? He alone. He alone. I will find it nowhere else. I need to look nowhere else. I shall not be shaken. A confident Christian does not let a day go by without reminding themselves who they are in Christ. Several years ago, maybe you've seen this, there, there was a video that went viral um, on YouTube. And it was a, of a father standing behind his young daughter looking into the mirror of the bathroom. She's maybe four or five years old. And he's sharing with the world what he does with his daughter every single day before she goes to school. Their daily routine she has her look at herself with her father behind her and say, I am beautiful. I am smart. I'm no better than anybody. No one is better than me. Thank you, God, for making me, me. That's going to be a confident little girl. Because with her father behind her, she is being reminded day in and day out, who she is, that she's no better than any other image bearer, that she's no worse than any other image bearer. She is who she is by the grace of God. That's a father that speaks life into his daughter. And that's the same thing that God has for us. Puts you in front of the mirror and reminds you who you are in him. And then notice the change in verse 8. So he's thinking individually, but then there's a shift in verse 8. If you still have your Bibles open, look down at verse 8. Now he says, trust in him at all times, people. You see that shift there. David moves from speaking life into himself to now speaking life into others, to the people of Israel. Psalm 62 tells us that following God is a team sport. Following God is basketball, not golf, right? Like, like, like there's others here that we need to be successful. One of the tragedies of modern Western culture is the overemphasis on individual achievement, the overemphasis on independence. And that's why we emphasize being in a faith community, a church family, because we, you and I, need encouragement from outside of us in our walk with Christ. And God wants to use you and me to encourage others in their walk with Christ. I, I kind of say this often that when you're walking into church on a Sunday morning, what should your mentality be? Well, I think there should be an eagerness to say, I want to be with my kind of faith community and I want to kind of hear the word and sing the word with them. But if everyone walked into this place every Sunday with a prayer that says, Lord, give me someone to encourage today. One person. Give me someone I can just speak life into. Use the Holy Spirit to speak through me to somebody who needs it today. What would it look like at Grace Church if everybody walking through those front doors had that mentality? Are you kidding me? What an oasis this would be. A spring in the desert of life that we are all walking in on some level or another with a spiritual limp when we walk in on Sunday. 
And we want to be a people through which we grow in our knowledge of Christ. And again, a people through which we make Christ known too. That this is the central hub for that happening. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his little book called Life Together, would highly recommend it. He says this, quote, The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. What he's saying is that sometimes you're going to walk in and the Christ in your own heart feels weak. And the Christ in the word of your brother or sister in Christ to you is more sure than at times what you're feeling inside. And we need that. So we talk about the Sunday gathering. We talk about small groups, right? Small groups is not just a churchy kind of thing we should do. It's vital kingdom impacting work where we have little gatherings where we draw closer to one another as we draw closer to Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews means in Hebrews 10, 24, 25, when he says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, giving courage, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brother and sister, you won't make it by yourself. And others won't make it without you playing your part too. Speak life. Testify to the work of Christ. Testify to the power of God in your life and in the lives of others. Tell it to all the people. Trust in him all times, David says. Let's keep going. I think we're on number four. Is this number four? I think so. A confident Christian does not fear man. We're in verse nine. A confident Christian does not fear man. Notice the progression happening here. David is beaten down. He is shook by the pursuit of his enemies over him. He's taking blow after blow. And then he looks in the mirror with his father looking over him. And he sees himself as he is in his father's eyes. And then what happens? Once he preaches to himself, he realizes that those who are against him are as powerful as a breath. That appears for a second and then is gone. Us, us in the Northeast can have this visual reminder that when it's really cold and you breathe out and you, you see the air come out in front of you, it's there for a second and it's gone. And that's the word picture that the Bible gives us of the lies of the powerful or the low, of nations and kings or of, or of peasants and those at the bottom of the food chain. doesn't matter where you are. We're all a breath. And so a confident Christian does not fear man when he is protected by the one who created man. Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, 26, so have no fear of them. He's talking about the Pharisees to his disciples, those overly religious elite that are condemning them. He says, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. A lot of us need to be honest as to how much we're controlled by the fear of man. How much of what we do or think or say is controlled by what we think others will do or think or say to and about us. And this can happen even in Christian circles, where you have your certain allegiance to a certain tribe or certain aspect or a certain group or author or speaker, 
and, and, and what you say or don't say or what you post and don't post, you're doing it because you want others to think about you and you fear them. You fear of what they'll think about you if you don't say this. You fear what they'll think about you if you do say this. And so that controls our actions as opposed to being led by the Spirit. A confident Christian submits themselves to the Lord. A confident Christian has an audience of one and does not fear man. Let's keep going. Number five. A confident Christian puts no hope in the things of man. Verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, and they might, but don't set your heart on them. I think about it like this. A confident Christian does not give in to the temptation to hedge their bets. Some of you know hedging. It's an investment strategy where you offset your risk by spreading out your investments in different ways. Right? A common phrase that talks about hedging is don't put all your eggs into one basket. It's too risky. So hedging may very well be a wise way to invest your retirement funds but it's a terrible way to invest your worship. Following Christ and putting all our hope in Him, that can feel risky, can it? So, so what we often end up doing, consciously or subconsciously, is we end up saying, yes, I'll believe in Jesus, but I'm going to hedge my bets here. I'm going to also set up my hopes and worship upon money or a different God or a spouse, or a child, that, that, that yes, God alone is my rock and my salvation in word, but in deed and functionally, I'm, I'm spreading out my worship, just in case this whole Jesus thing doesn't work out. And, and I see others that seem to be doing that, and they seem really happy about this. We'll talk more about this later in the summer in Psalm 73. But I see others, and they seem to be doing just fine. So I'm just going to get a little bit of that. I'm, I'm not letting go of Jesus. I'm just going to set my heart in some other things as well. It's the desire of wanting a foot in both worlds. Having your heart on Christ and something else. I was thinking about this illustration uh, because our family's going up to Camp Spofford this weekend uh, for our annual week up at camp. And the best summer I've had was when I was a boat driver at Camp Spofford. All right, it helps when your brother's the director of the camp, all right, because that is the most coveted job at Camp Spofford, but there's a very painful lesson I had to learn at Camp Spofford upon the boat driver, and if you have, know anything about driving boats, you probably know what I'm about to say, or know, can relate to what I'm about to say. When you're on a ski boat, and you pull up to the dock, you got to tie the rope onto the dock. Rule number 101 for boat drivers, don't put your foot on the dock, all right, you keep your two feet in the boat. You pull yourself to the dock, you tie it up. Because when you put one foot on both, you got one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat. And if you're not tied in, what begins to happen? The boat starts to drift. And I'm not very flexible. All right, it didn't get very uncomfortable very quickly. And what happens is they start to go away from one another. And if you don't choose one or the other, you're going to end up in the water. So you got to just, you either instinctively go to the dock and the boat is going bye-bye. Now you got to jump back in and swim after the boat. Or you put your foot in the boat and everybody on the dock is just watching you as you're just drifting away. And now you got to go circle around and come back to the dock. That's what it means to have your foot in both worlds. To try and have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of everything else. Over time, those things go opposite directions. And you're going to have to choose one or you're going to fall in the water. So in all seriousness, 
Some of you are hedging your bets right now. You're trying to have a foot in both worlds. And you're saying, no, I can keep it stable. I'm okay, I'm okay. But you're going to end up in the water. Or more likely, you're going to put both feet in the boat and drift away from the Lord. And something is holding you back. There's a relationship that you're not willing to give up, even though it's not honoring to God, and you know it. There's a desire for money where everything else gets sacrificed as long as you make the number you have in mind, and, and, and you know it, and you've justified it to yourself. There, there's a love for the things of the flesh. You say, I can manage this. I can do both. I can have Jesus in this too. He wants me to be happy. And the exhortation is don't hedge your bets. Don't put your trust in the things of man. Trust in God alone. And I know there's these feelings of guilt and shame that you're just trying to make me feel guilty and I don't want to feel guilty. God doesn't want to make me feel guilty. Um, yes and amen. He does not want you to feel guilty. But he wants you to put no trust in anything else but himself. And so you don't need to carry that guilt and shame that you can repent of that. Repentance is a word of freedom, amen? That's not a word of shackles. That's a word of freedom that God invites us to repent of these things. Leave the things that are pulling you away from him. All right, last thing, and then we're going to close. A confident Christian will not be shaken. We get to the ending scene, which happens to be the same scene that we saw at the beginning. At the first midweek family night that Miss Megan did this summer, it was a couple weeks back, the theme phrase of the night for the children that were there were, quote, I can have confidence because I am known. And she had it in her very talented Miss Megan way, had the kids say it over and over and over again. I can have confidence because I am known. And I'm standing there in the back, I'm going, man, this is for all of us. The kids are the ones that have to repeat it, but we should all be listening to this. Because David writes in verse 12, we can have confidence because a God who has all the power also has all the love. If God had all the power but no love, we would not be known. And if God had all the love but none of the power, we would not be known. But God has all the power and all the love. And he knows us through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world with confidence, sent by the Father to redeem and restore his creation. Jesus waited patiently while praying in the garden, preparing to be glorified on the cross. Jesus was beaten and broken on our behalf, giving his life so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus preached to himself, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus did not fear man. Jesus did not rely on the things of man. Jesus was not shaken. But he endured the cross with joy, with full trust that he will be raised again. And that same victory that he declared over death is the victory that would be applied to those who believe. Let's pray. Father, it's in your name alone that we can say along with your servant David, I will not be shaken. For you alone is our rock and our salvation. And Father, this does not slow us down, but it speeds us up. It fuels us for the works that you have prepared before us, Lord. Works for your glory, works for the good of the kingdom, works that uphold the least of these. 
And so I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would truly trust you and get going. Step into the story that you have called us into. That we would rest in you, see ourselves for how we really are in you, and then do the work that you have put before us. Father, allow us to stand on this rock. Father, allow us to be a church full of confident Christians. It's in your name we pray. Amen.